Welcome again to our study in the Epistle of Philippians. And glad you're here with us tonight. This is week number four, and we're looking specifically at verses 11 through 13 of chapter 1. So let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Father, we thank you again for the privilege of meeting together to study your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word lives and abides and is never outdated in terms of your instructions to us and the way that you reveal yourself to us through your inspired word. We bless you, Lord, for it. We thank you that you have preserved it for us, and we pray that as we read and study tonight on these verses from Paul's epistle to the Philippians, that you would enliven your word to us so that we might know it better, so that we might commit ourselves in even greater ways to obey and to live it out for your glory and for the building up of one another in the truth. So, Lord, I pray for each one of the people who are here uh, joining us. I pray, Lord, for their respective families and communities. I pray, Lord, that you would enable us all in our respective places and in our lives and the people that we contact to be true lights of the gospel for you, for the glory of our Savior, Yeshua, who lives and reigns. Yeshua, we are so grateful that you always live to make intercession for us. And we bless you that your Holy Spirit, your Ruach HaKodesh, dwells with us and in us. So, Father, we address you as our Father, because indeed you have made us to be your children in Yeshua. And we bless you in his name. Amen. All right, we're going to read uh, the first chapter as we regularly do. Uh, we read each chapter in its completion until we get to the next chapter. And that way, hopefully, our few uh, minutes on a few verses will not be disconnected from the whole. So here is Philippians 1. I'm reading out of the Christian Standard Bible. Uh, we try to look at several different versions as we as we read each week. So this is the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. Paul and Timothy, servants of Messiah Yeshua, to all the saints in Messiah Yeshua who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua Messiah. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Messiah Yeshua. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you, because I have you in my heart, and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Messiah Yeshua. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and in every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Messiah, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Yeshua Messiah to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Messiah. Most of the brothers have gained confidence 
in the Lord from my imprisonment, and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Messiah out of envy and rivalry, but others out of good will. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Messiah out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Messiah is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Yeshua Messiah. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Messiah will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Messiah, and to die is gain. Now if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Messiah, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Messiah Yeshua may abound. Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Messiah. Then, whether I come and see you, or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Messiah's behalf not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. So those are quite wonderful words, um, and full of meaning for us as we study them. Now we're breaking into uh, our text here because uh, it's very uh, a very long uh, sentence, but he's talking about um, remaining faithful until the very day of Messiah. And that's where we left off last week at the end of uh, verse 10, that the primary goal for all believers is to persevere until the day when Yeshua returns. It is the return of Messiah to take all believers from every era since the creation of the world to be with him for eternity that must strengthen our resolve to serve him in spirit and in truth. And so we have to have our uh, our faith strengthened time and time again. We must grow in our faith as we come upon various struggles and trials that will test our faith, and yet as we set our eyes upon his return, we know for certain that when he returns, we will be with him forever. So as we have our eyes fixed on his return, we are given the courage and the strength to carry on the mission he has given each of us to do in regard to our respective communities, families, and friends. So then, verse 11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Messiah Yeshua, to the glory and praise of God. The confidence of the Apostle in regard to the reality of the genuine faith of the believers in the Philippian community 
is that they had proven their faith. Remember, we talked about this from the verses last week. He was confident that they were believers. Why? Because they had proven their faith by their lives of obedience and holiness, as well as their genuine love for one another. It was this same love that they expressed to Paul by maintaining his life while in prison. And Epaphroditus they sent with the needed things that uh, that Paul had. And undoubtedly, uh, he and others were assisting Paul because, as we mentioned last week, in the prisons uh, of Rome, they were not feeding the prisoners nor caring for any of their physical needs. That was up to their friends outside of the prison. And so, uh, undoubtedly, many... Uh, prisoners died of starvation in those prisons. But Paul was cared for by uh, the believers in the communities in which he had uh, fellowshiped. In this regard, the words of Yeshua are foundational. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Thus, in our verse, Paul emphasizes the means by which the believer's life is changed so as to grow more and more, to serve one's Savior, Yeshua, and thus to serve each other in genuine acts of love. This is the very love and commitment which seeks more and more to honor Yeshua, and thereby strengthens one another within the believing community to serve Him as He intends. You see, you can't separate love for Yeshua and love for one another who are part of the body of Messiah. For if we love Him, we will love those who are in Him, those who are saved as we are by His grace. And yet, there is this constant battle, isn't there, of overcoming our sinful nature, the flesh that we have. And that flesh inevitably is selfish, It refers to oneself as more important than others. And that is something we must constantly subdue and put away because we know that is not what God intends. Loving one another. In fact, love by its very nature is to put the needs of someone else as more important than your own needs. And so this is what Paul is talking about. He saw that the Philippian community served him and helped him, even though doing so would connect them to him and may bring persecution even as he was being persecuted. So Paul goes on to say, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, that is, the inward working of the indwelling Ruach, the Holy Spirit, the very gift of God to every believer, is inevitably seen in one's outward actions, which we understand as fruit. That's how it's used in this text, and particularly in showing godly and righteous love to fellow believers. Now, why is the metaphor of fruit uh, used? It's because, as we mentioned last week uh, in this larger text, that the root is identified by the fruit that comes on the branches. So, the fruit is the inevitable Uh, outcome of the reality of the root. Are we honestly rooted in the Messiah? Do we find our life from the Messiah? If so, then our actions, the way we treat one another, and how we uh, abstain from doing those things which, uh, which our Savior hates, 
and doing those things which he loves. This is why we'll see as we go along here that our having been brought into the family of God, having been adopted into his family before the foundations of the earth, according to Paul in Ephesians 1, 5, and 6, the outcome of the true faith, believing faith, being rescued from the penalty of sin and brought into the very family of God, the fruit of that is what gives the reality that this is true for us. That Paul labels such righteous actions as the fruit of righteousness, and that's just exactly what the Greek says, karpon tekaiosunes, clearly emphasizes that the ability of the believer to live righteously and to have their lives characterized by that which pleases God is the result, that is the fruit, of Yeshua's work who alone paid the penalty of sin and by whose redemptive work and intercession enables the believer to be indwelt and empowered by the Ruach, the very Spirit of God, as such. The fruit of righteousness is the very authenticity of that a person is truly born again by the sovereign and omnipotent power and grace of God. Someone who says that they're a believer, but there's no fruit in their life to that effect. There's question mark. And there ought to be personally, in our own life, a constant uh, checking to see. Am I overcoming the weakness of the flesh and more and more able to do what I know the Lord wants me to do? Paul emphasizes this as well in his epistle to the Ephesians, as I've said. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Messiah Yeshua for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Anyone who is a craftsman, Anyone who builds things out of wood or creates things, whether it's art or whether it's, you know, with clay or something, whatever they make has a purpose. And if what they make is not fulfilling that purpose, then they're not very good workmen. Their workmanship is lousy. But God's workmanship is perfect. And Paul says we are his workmanship. When he saves us, he enables us more and more to say no to the sinful flesh and to say yes to the Spirit of God and to grow in righteousness and to show the fruit of righteousness by the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, and you know the rest. Moreover, the writer to the Hebrews makes it clear that the ability to pursue peace with all people is a genuine mark of the sanctification, which is the inevitable work of the Ruach in every true believer in Yeshua. Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. What does it mean to be sanctified? It means to be separated. Separated from that which God hates, and separated unto Him and therefore bringing forth fruit of righteousness. This comes close in meaning to the words of Yeshua in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The author of Hebrews uses the expression, See the Lord, to mean eternal salvation, that is, to spend eternity in the very presence of God, 
without any impediment to a full and unending relationship of shalom. In short, without the kind of sanctification that God desires, eternal salvation is impossible. In other words, if there is absolutely no fruit, then there's no reason to believe that there is honestly the root of salvation. Therefore, we know that sanctification, which is becoming more and more set apart unto God and set apart from sin, is the inevitable result of our being saved by God's grace through faith. So, I wanted to spend a little bit of time. I know we're in uh, in our community at Beit Hillel. We're talking about this on Shabbat afternoons as well. But it fits very well in this text that we have. And so, here's an excursus referring to and talking about sanctification. It is through the work of the Holy Spirit that Yeshua's death, that is his blood, is applied to the sinner via faith, thus cleansing him or her of the sin that would otherwise keep them separate from God. In fact, while in the Tanakh the Spirit is often referred to as the Spirit of God, and I give some references there, the use of the adjective holy found in connection with the Spirit may well indicate not only his own attribute of holiness, but also one of his primary works, that is, to impart holiness to those whom God has redeemed. That's why he's called the Holy Spirit. He is the Spirit of holiness. Not only is he holy, 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 because Father, Son, and Spirit are one, but it is because it is his work and his way of sanctifying us that causes us to be more and more set apart, that is, holy unto God. Thus, in the apostolic scriptures, Numatutheu, Spirit of God, does occur twelve times, but Numatos Hogioi, Holy Spirit, is far more prevalent, ninety times. Thus, the apostles intend to emphasize the fact that it is the work of the Spirit to sanctify, that is, to make holy, those whom God is saving. Indeed, the fact that the Spirit of God indwells those who are being saved brings the symbolism of the tabernacle or temple full circle. Even as God's Shekinah, that is, His visible glory, resided over the ark, attributing holiness to the space of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and the Hechal, the temple, so the abiding Spirit of God within the believer sanctifies or separates him or her unto God. Having one's life separated to God and from that which is contrary to Him is what is meant by sanctification or being sanctified. Unfortunately, all too often, in the realm of Christian theology, salvation is summed up in the doctrine of justification. Now, I'm not talking about across the board. There are plenty of good Christian theologians who would recognize uh, salvation is not only justification, but also sanctification and ultimately glorification. But there are some who persist in this. And this is particularly seen in some of the uh, popular uh, churches and so forth and teachers in those churches. Or we could say it another way. Practically speaking, a good deal of modern Christianity has taught that the sum and substance of being saved is to have one's sins forgiven by God. The goal of much evangelism, so-called, is to have the sinner pray the sinner's prayer, after which the person is told, you are now saved. Well, in one sense, this may in fact be true. But more often than not, the scriptures present salvation as a total package, 
not as though it were summed up in one aspect or another of God's saving work. You understand what I'm saying? When God saves us, he saves us not only from his wrath and from eternal punishment, but he saves us unto himself to be witnesses and examples of his greatness here and now on the earth. Thus, the one who has placed his or her faith in Yeshua may rightly claim to be saved. This declaration should be understood to encompass a final and complete salvation which has not yet been realized. In other words, granted, our eternal salvation is just as sure as our current salvation. That is, if we are genuinely born from above. We can put it this way. Salvation from the eternal consequences of sin that is, from the wrath of God against sin and sinners, has been realized when someone truly places their faith in Yeshua. But salvation from sin itself has not. Right? We still have the sinful nature. We have not been released to perfection upon confessing Yeshua uh, in, in faith to be our Savior and repenting of our sin. No. Thus, while being declared righteous or justified assures the believer that he or she will never be condemned for their sin, the struggle against sin remains, proving that salvation from sin has not yet been fully realized, even if God has promised that it will be. Those who have confessed Yeshua to be the Savior and by faith have entrusted their eternal souls to his saving work, may rightly affirm both that they are saved and are being saved. The promise of God assures the final outcome, but currently they are in the process of becoming more and more like Yeshua, that is, of being saved from the sinful flesh, and ultimately saved completely, so that the sinful flesh is no more. Thus, sanctification is viewed in the scriptures in two ways. As that full and complete holiness or sinlessness which is inevitable for all who have been effectually called to faith and, just, and, and justified, and secondly, as that work of God's Spirit by which the believer is progressively being separated from sin or the world and unto God being more and more conformed in thought, in word, and in deed to the image of Yeshua, God's Son. John Murray gives this description. When we speak of sanctification, we generally think of it as the process by which the believer is gradually transformed in heart, mind, will, and conduct, and conformed more and more to the will of God and to the image of Christ, until at death the disembodied spirit is made perfect in holiness, and at the resurrection his body likewise will be conformed to the likeness of the body of Christ's glory. It is biblical to apply the term sanctification to this process of transformation and confirmation. Yet while the scriptures surely speak of sanctification as a process, that is, as progressive, in which the believer grows in personal holiness, the biblical text also speaks of sanctification as already accomplished. Attempts at emphasizing one aspect to the exclusion of the other have resulted in theological imbalances and even error. For instance, the doctrine held by some segments of the Christian church, that it is possible for a believer to become entirely sinless in this life, which is known theologically as perfectionism, is a misunderstanding of those texts that emphasize definite sanctification. Now, 
Again, what I mean by definite sanctification, it means that ultimately the scriptures teach us that if we are in the Messiah, our eternal salvation is as sure as, as we are now in him. He said he would lose none. So our being entirely set apart to him and from the world is an inevitability, and that's why we can say, in one sense, it's already accomplished. They do so, when they speak of this, on the grounds that the believer's final and complete sanctification is inevitable, just as is their glorification. And we could read that in Romans 8, verse 30. Conversely, those who emphasize the progressive nature of sanctification, neglecting to emphasize those texts that speak of its having already been accomplished, often fail to see that the fountain from which sanctification flows is, in fact, the same as that from which justification is derived, namely, the union of the believer with Yeshua in his death and resurrection. If we are justified, which means what? Declared not guilty. If God in his role as the supreme and eternal judge has declared us forever innocent and therefore not under his wrath, then that declaration also secures the fact that we will one day be with him. And yet, the scriptures make it clear that there is a cooperation between the believer and the Spirit of God to become more and more set apart to him and away from the things of the flesh and the world. God is a relational God. He doesn't just pull levers or push buttons. He, together with the believer, works to bring about his perfect will. And it is our responsibility to submit our will to him. And in doing that, we more and more are able to say no to the sinful flesh and yes to the Spirit of God and where he is leading us. So the biblical texts that speak of sanctification in definitive rather than progressive terms do so in much the same way as the scriptures present justification as definitive. From God's perspective, our sanctification is as sure as our justification, since both rest upon the finished work of Yeshua. They both may therefore be spoken of as already accomplished. On the other hand, from our own perspective, we are progressively becoming what God has declared us to be, that is, righteous. It doesn't mean that sometimes we take some steps backwards. You know, if you take the picture of climbing up a, a mountain and you get tired and you rest and then you go back down a little ways and whatever and then you come back up, of course, there are times when by the we give in to our sinful nature and we do things that we are ashamed of or things that we shouldn't have done or we say something and we have to ask forgiveness. But all of that is put together to make us take the next step forward in becoming more and more like the Messiah. So the mystery of our sanctification, then, is that while on the one hand it is sure, because God has determined that we should be sanctified, it is, on the other hand, dependent upon our persevering in becoming holy. While our justification depended entirely upon God's work alone, which we could call monergistic, which means one working, our sanctification comes about through our own cooperation with God, which we could call synergistic, that is, working together. Yet our cooperation with God in our own sanctification, as necessary as it is, never jeopardizes our inevitable, final, and complete holiness. So, 
The phrase, persevere we must, persevere we will, is on the mark. God will not allow us to remain estranged from Him by giving in to the flesh on a regular basis. If we are His, He will discipline us. He will bring us to Himself in ways that we could have never imagined. But inevitably, we will become more and more conformed to Yeshua. All right, back to Philippians. So, he says that this is all to the glory and praise of God. And if we, uh, if we look at that verse, which is in verse 11, it says, Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Messiah Yeshua to the glory and praise of God. That's the goal. The goal is the glory and praise of God. Paul closes verse 11 with this most important phrase, teaching us once again that our salvation by God's grace and through the saving work of our Savior Yeshua is ultimately given to us in order that God will be glorified and given the praise He deserves. Surely our eternal salvation is a gift unspeakable, enabling the believer to live with assurance, praise, and confidence, even in this fallen world. This is because the salvation we have been given by God enables us to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, which is just the word straight out of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What does it say in the Old English? What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And in fact, this must become more and more the primary focus and goal of the believer's life. You say, well, is it okay to have this idea that the more I I, uh, honor the Lord and the more I please Him and so forth, the more I'll get and the better I'll, I'll, I'll enjoy life and so forth. Well, that is true. But ultimately, our final, our final motivation ought to be to give God the glory He deserves. And this is because the salvation we have been given by God enables us to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And in fact... This must become more and more the primary focus and goal of the believer's life. How is it that in my day-to-day activities, in my relationships with my family members, in my relationship with other believers, in my work and so forth, is there a sense in which what I'm doing, I'm doing to bring glory to God? I want others to say, what is it about you that enables you to to, to act in this way even when I would think you would react in a negative way. How is it that you're able to show grace to somebody who's treating you terribly? Well, it's because that's what my Savior did for me. He underwent the worst of degradation for me. And I want to bring Him the glory that he deserves. Surely in our own weaknesses we may fail at times to progress in our faith as we should, but inevitably the Lord will grant repentance as the Spirit brings conviction and the believer yields to his persistent and loving persuasion. One thing for certain, God will not give up any of those for whom Yeshua paid the price. 
So, it is inevitable that by one means or another, He will cause all who are His to become more and more like His Son, Yeshua. The primary point that Paul emphasizes in this final phrase of our verse is that ultimately our goal as those redeemed by the saving power of God is that He should receive the praise and glory. All too often the message of salvation in our modern times is presented as that which will benefit the individual, focusing on all of the ways salvation uh, will bring lasting benefits. Surely, the salvation that Yeshua has won for all who are His brings untold benefits for the believer, both in this world and in the world to come. But what is too often missing the presentation of the gospel is that those who are redeemed by God's grace have been given the ability to glorify God by seeking to give Him all of the praise for such a bountiful gift. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6.20, For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And again in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, verses 12 through 13, Paul goes on to say, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Messiah has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. You'll notice that in many of the modern translations, they're translating this brothers and sisters rather than brethren, because in our times there has been a movement to include all genders in the translation of the scriptures, and I understand that. But one should also understand that the word, the word that underlies the Greek word that underlies brethren, means family members. So it's a good, it's a it's a typical good word, uh, and uh, to to include all who are believers. So that's what he says. I want you to know. If you needed to think of brothers and sisters, that's fine. But all of you who are believers, he wants them to know about his true circumstances. Paul now begins a new section of his letter to the Philippian community, addressing his own situation and what may have been obvious questions that the Philippian believers had. Now, I didn't uh, spend any time doing this, but the way verse 12 starts out, now I want you to know, was uh, a typical way to start a a new section of a letter, even in non-biblical literature that has been discovered from the first century and so forth. So he's he's now moving on to a new section. Thus he begins uh, by stressing his desire that they know the truth about his situation, and especially that they not be disheartened or even worse. Some who were perhaps fairly new believers in Yeshua may have entertained questions as to whether Paul's message and emphasis upon the gospel in Yeshua was in fact true. In other words, if Paul is telling us this great, great story, then how come all of a sudden God allows him to be in prison? It seems like maybe this is something that I need to rethink. You could see new believers in the community of Philippi kind of questioning, why did God allow this to happen to him? Maybe there's something here I should investigate. Maybe the message that he gave us is not all that accurate. Maybe I need to be very careful. Maybe this is some kind of a anti-Rome kind of a movement. 
Others may have considered Paul's imprisonment as giving strength to those who stood against Yeshua and thereby bringing upon the believing communities heightened persecution. In other words, if they were able to uh, concoct this notion that Paul was the one who was beginning all these riots and and that he had uh, desecrated the temple and so forth and so on, as you read in Acts 24, if they were able to convince the authorities of this, then would that also mean that everyone who uh, followed Paul's teaching, who actually uh, agreed that Yeshua was the promised Messiah of Israel, would they then be under persecution? And uh, this heightened persecution may have caused some to say, whoa, I need to back off and see what's going on here. And still others may have been losing hope that Paul would be released from prison or even found guilt, guilty of false charges against him. So he says, I want you to know. In the Greek, the opening word of verse 12 is ginoskein, to know. In other words, to know is what I want you to do. <laughs> and even though normally an infinitive like this would be put later in the clause, here Paul puts it first in the sentence in order to give it emphasis. Paul was rightly concerned that his brothers and sisters in the Lord, who comprised the believing community in Philippi, not be discouraged frightened or dismayed at his current situation. He therefore intends to make the truth known, as well as the circumstances of which they were surely unaware. One could imagine that there were those within the Philippian community who, because of Paul's imprisonment, were questioning the reality of Paul's message. While others may have thought that his incarceration would encourage those who opposed him and cause heightened persecution against Yeshua followers in general. And likewise, it is possible that there were those in the Philippian community who were wondering whether or not the charges brought against Paul were actually true, that he was the instigator of riots and that he had desecrated the temple. Thus Paul is intent on making sure the Philippian community knew not only that he was innocent of the false charges brought against him, but also that his current circumstances were surely divinely chosen in order to bring about the success of the gospel in a way one could have never planned. It's so interesting, I think, that because so very often, it seems, unfortunately in our times, there are those who are leaders, those who are teachers, those who are very widely known, and because of our modern technologies, uh, people all over the place will know this teacher or that teacher, and he may have or she may have all kinds of conferences and so forth where, uh, where perhaps hundreds or even thousands of people show up. Uh, it's not, it, it isn't always a great surprise when we find that there are those, not hopefully many, but we know that there have been those who have had a very popular following who then were discovered to have been involved in something uh, extremely decadent and unworthy of anyone who claimed to be a teacher of the gospel and of the scriptures. And you can imagine that there might have been some who thought that of Paul. It's like, okay, what's the deal here? How come he's in prison? So he was intent on making sure the Philippian community knew not only that he was innocent of the false charges brought against him, but also that his current circumstances were surely divinely chosen in order to bring about the success of the gospel in a way one could have never planned. He talks about his circumstances. It translates literally, the things about me, or the things concerning me. 
and therefore includes all that follows, including his incarceration, as well as his opportunity to continue to proclaim the gospel centered in Yeshua the Messiah. In describing his circumstances, he is not seeking to diminish the difficulty, the pain, and the physical struggle that no doubt resulted from his current imprisonment. Nor is he saying that physical suffering is good. It's like, oh, just, you know, the more you suffer, the better you are. No, he's not saying that. As one writer notes, Paul does not say that being in change is good. He takes no masochistic delight in his suffering, but he also does not bemoan it. In other words, he's not saying, hey, I, just everything's just fine, don't worry about me. No, I mean, he's, he's talking about the fact that he's in prison and that it undoubtedly was very difficult. He doesn't bring that up necessarily because he doesn't have to. Anyone who knew the circumstances uh, of, uh, of which he was in would have known that the place he was was no fun place to be. <laughs> so he's not saying, oh, it's uh, you know, let me suffer some more for the Lord. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that God is always in control and that he has a good purpose for everything that he brings upon us. He says it have have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Rather, what is uppermost in Paul's mind is that even in this most difficult situation, as he is given strength by God, he is able to glorify him by proclaiming the gospel. He writes that his incarceration has, quote, turned out or enabled an open door for the gospel. The words turned out translate the verb Erkomai, the verb to come or go, here in the perfect tense. Now, why do I bring that up? Well, the perfect tense in the Koine Greek combines in itself, so to speak, the present and the aorist in that it denotes the continuance of a completed action. In other words, the aorist in the Greek normally talks about a completed action, and the present uh, verb talks about action that's ongoing. The perfect combines those two. Something that's completed, but something that has ongoing reality and importance and therefore is something that can be spoken of. The point is that Paul intends his readers to understand by using this language. I realize that it is not, it's kind of hidden in the English, but it seems quite clear in the, in the Greek. He wants his readers to understand that his circumstances are that which God sovereignly ordained In other words, God's sovereign ordination is finished and complete, but it continues to bring about his purposes throughout the ages. So, God sovereignly ordained these uh, circumstances so that he, that is, Paul, would have an open door to proclaim the gospel where in normal circumstances it would seem impossible. You couldn't just decide to walk into a prison and just start preaching the gospel. That didn't happen in the ancient times. A regular phrase he uses is opening a door when it talks about the gospel, which enabled him to proclaim the gospel where otherwise he would have been hindered to do so. And I give you references there in 1 Corinthians 16.9, 2 Corinthians 2.12, and Colossians 4.3. He talks about God sovereignly opening a door, doing something that was beyond the ability of him to bring about that was necessary for him to bring the gospel into the respective uh, locations. And surely, this is what it took place here uh, in as he was imprisoned in Rome, 
uh, as he writes this letter to the Philippian community. Surely we can be encouraged by the example of Paul, for instead of bemoaning the hardship of his imprisonment, he knows that God is in control, and that in trusting him, good would come of his suffering. So isn't that, I mean, is the first thing that he reminds the uh, Philippians about, is that God has sovereignly ordained this. His will is cemented from before the foundations of the world because God doesn't change and God uh, exists out of time. So what he has ordained has current and regular influence on who I am and what I'm doing. And so when I come into a hard time, not because I have made a foolish uh, decision or because I have done something I shouldn't have done, but because I am being, in some ways, suffering for the gospel, as Paul was, then we can say, okay, the Lord is in control. He must have something very, very valuable for me to do. So we can be encouraged by this. For instead of bemoaning the hardship of his imprisonment, he knows that God is in control and that in trusting him, good would come of his suffering. In the phrase, greater progress of the gospel, the words greater progress translates a single word, brokompe, which in the apostolic scriptures is used only here in verse 25 of our chapter and one more time in 1 Timothy 4.15. It is not found in the canonical books of the Septuagint, but only in 2 Maccabees 8.8 and Sirach 51.17. While not regularly used in the older Greek, it appears in the Hellenistic Greek as a common word to, quote, denote progress and prosperity in the physical, economic, and social sphere. For Paul, the progress of the gospel is accredited to God's sovereignly opening doors that otherwise would never be opened. Surely his words here were to encourage the Philippian believers that contrary to what may appear to be a roadblock in his work, the Lord was in control and opportunities for proclaiming the good news of Yeshua had been given where no one would have hardly expected them. These opportunities was a once in a lifetime, even if it required the suffering that Paul underwent to be incarcerated in such a, uh, a place. Surely, this should encourage all of us to consider every opportunity in which we find ourselves in a place to share the gospel of Yeshua. In a world where so many are lost in the darkness of sin, we have the grand opportunity and mission to live out the gospel before a watching world and to proclaim the gospel of Yeshua, recognizing that we are enabled to plant the seed and it is God himself who will bring the seed to life. We read about that very metaphor in 1 Corinthians 3, 5-7. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. So I just challenge you to think about this. I just challenge you to consider. You don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to be a teacher. Sometimes you can plant just one small seed. 
You're talking to someone perhaps you've not met before in some situation. Maybe you're standing in line somewhere or, or maybe you're, uh, I don't know what it may be, a neighbor or something that you haven't talked to very often or whatever. What is there that you can plant in their mind about pursuing who God is and who they are in relationship to God? Think about it. Maybe there's just some kind of a conversation you can open up where questions will be asked and you'll be able to give answers. Paul goes on to say, So that my imprisonment in the cause of Messiah. Here Paul makes it clear that he was not guilty of the charges leveled against him, but that his, his charges against him, which resulted in his incarceration, were false and simply manufactured by those who wanted him silenced. Once again, Paul sees his current circumstances as having been ordained by God, and that his situation was actually designed to bring the gospel to those whom God intended to hear it, that is, for the cause of Messiah. And what is the cause of the Messiah? He says his imprisonment was for the cause of Messiah. Paul was able to demonstrate to those in prison that his imprisonment was solely based upon hatred against him by those who had rejected Yeshua. He was imprisoned because of his unwavering faith in Yeshua and because he had been called by Yeshua himself to proclaim the truth about Yeshua. Even recognizing that openly proclaiming Yeshua as the promised Messiah and Savior of sinners would make him vulnerable to persecution did not stop him, indeed, could not stop him from fulfilling the mission Yeshua had given him. Surely, Paul stands among many who present to us a strong faith and commitment to be witnesses for our risen and reigning Savior, regardless of the cost. I know in the past uh, I had opportunity and privilege to talk with some who were in the former Soviet Union uh, who were giving the gospel on a regular basis, even though it was against the law. And at least one of them even spent time in, in the prison because they caught him handing out tracts and so forth. And yet, when I was able to talk with them when they were here in the States, they were intent upon maintaining this work. And I just, I, I so much, uh, I so much appreciate those who have done this and do this, even as the Apostle Paul did. They stand to, uh, before us as uh, witnesses of how we all should be willing to do whatever it takes to give glory and honor to the God who has saved us for our salvation is so great because the penalty, the price that was paid for our salvation was so great. So, this gospel, Paul says, has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Here Paul makes it clear that the gospel, the cause of Yeshua, had become well known it's, it's a word that literally means uh, popular throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. The Greek phoneros means that which is made plain and clear and evident. Undoubtedly, this would come about by repeated contact and conversation with those who were guarding the prisoners. There is some evidence that by the phrase Praetorian Guard, Paul is referring to the building which housed the soldiers, which would mean that wherever he was moved within the structure, he was able to give witness to, of the gospel. However, there is ample, sufficient evidence that by Praetorian Guard, Paul means the soldiers themselves. Likewise, Paul adds, 
and to everyone else, which means the prisoners themselves gave audience to Paul's message of the gospel. Thus he indicates clearly that by God's all-powerful hand, Paul was able to proclaim the gospel to the vast majority of people who were connected with or incarcerated in the prison. So again, what lesson do we learn from this? To me it's obvious, nothing can stand in the way of God's design to have the gospel known. Let us therefore never be afraid, or for some other reasons remain silent when the opportunity presents itself to share the gospel, or even to plant a single seed that might lead to further inquiries about the gospel. You don't have to, you know, you might say, well, I'm on the bus or I'm on the airplane. I don't have, you know, I, I, I can maybe have a short conversation with someone. Okay, plant a seed. You say, well, Tim, how would you do that? Well, think of some good questions. I mean, sometimes you can just say, oh, hello, um, yeah, okay, my name's Tim, and you're, maybe you're on the airplane and you're talking back and forth, and you, and you kind of say where, you know, where you're going and, and what you're uh, uh, traveling for and so forth and so on. And, and then you might ask the question, oh, um, you go to church somewhere? Well, that can open up a whole conversation. If they say, no, no, I never go to church, then it's easy to say, oh, really, why? And you can begin to maybe plant a seed. Ultimately, the seed is, have you read the Bible? Maybe it would spark their curiosity to open up the scriptures and to begin to read it. And if the Spirit of God is drawing them unto himself, might use that to start the whole process, the whole journey of coming to the truth. Let us therefore never be afraid or for some other reason remain silent when the opportunity presents itself to share the gospel or even to plant a single seed that might lead to further inquiries about the gospel. As Paul wrote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And of course here in Romans Paul is just beginning to unfold that promise made to Abraham that in your seed, and we know that the seed is Messiah, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And we are privileged to carry the good news of the gospel. We are privileged to be his witnesses for what purpose? That he would be glorified. Okay, well, that's where we're going to end for this evening. And, Lord willing, we will see you next week as we continue our study in the Epistle of Philippians.